Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. It's a podcast where we summarize modern medical legal threats to doctors in 15 minutes or less. The goal is to allow you to continue practicing great medicine with peace of mind. And I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical and Dental Justice, an organization dedicated to protecting physicians from frivolous lawsuits, internet libel, unwarranted demands for refunds, and a gazillion other medical legal threats. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mike Sakopoulos, who serves as our organization's general counsel. This case is a surgeon who is sued by a patient who also happened to be an attorney, so we're already starting off on the wrong foot. The, um, the surgeon had done a total hip replacement, and it turned out the attorney patient was an extremely tall uh, individual, and the hospital was unable to arrange for an extra long bed to allow him to recover. So the attorney patient stated that since his request was not honored, the consent that he signed was null and void. So let me repeat that. The attorney patient stated that since his request uh, for a extra long bed was not honored, the underlying consent for the um, hip replacement was null and void. So instead of just um, alleging some type of negligence, he upped the ante and he alleged battery. Um, the judge eventually dismissed the case uh, in the uh, physician's favor. Now, I, I am somewhat sympathetic to the plight of the extra tall individual who just had a, um, a hip replacement and not being able to recover um, in comfort. It, it, it is not dissimilar to the plight of a basketball player confined to the middle seat coach, and, and not just any coach, but perhaps in Frontier Airlines where <laughs> – the, 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 seats, the seats are stacked so closely to each other that the only people who can be comfortable are long-term diabetics that have had above-the-knee amputations. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I think all of us can be sympathetic to the plight. But let's um, spend a couple of minutes just talking about what the person alleged. He alleged battery. So battery is what is called an intentional tort. So let's refresh. 99% of the time when a patient is alleging a problem with a physician, it's um, with the tort of negligence, meaning that uh, the doctor did not follow the standard of care, and because he breached the standard of care, that caused damages. Um, battery is what is called an intentional tort. An intentional tort is similar to assault, um, uh, false imprisonment, uh, intention, intentional infliction of emotional distress. You see the word intentional, meaning that um, it wasn't that the doctor was merely negligent. It's that they went out of their way to create a particular outcome. Now, battery is a very difficult case to make uh, against a, a surgeon, particularly if there's a, a consent form. And we'll talk about um, the consent process as being somewhat different than the signed consent form. But... Um, the only times that I think we've really been able to see a case or an allegation of battery stick is where the surgeon does something entirely antithetical to the letter and spirit of the consent form. So let me give a couple of examples. Operating on the wrong patient. So clearly you don't have any permission to operate on the wrong patient. Um, operating on the wrong side. If you are supposed to do the right side and you end up doing the left side, 
arguably that could be a, um, a battery. And interestingly enough, um, we've seen cases where the surgeon intended to stage a procedure, meaning that they were going to do the right side first, let the patient recover, and come back and do the left side sometime later. You can see, you can imagine that with cases of carpal tunnel or cataracts. I mean, there are any number of procedures where you may want to minimize exposing the patient to the full onslaught of risk and to stage the procedure. So in that particular model, um, you... you you intend long-term to do both sides, the right side and the left side. But if you reverse it, do the right side first, um, when you're only consenting, you're, the, the patient was consented to get the left side done first, you may run into the problem of battery. So battery is an intentional tort. And why is this, why is this important? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is that not only are there what are called actual damages, but there are punitive damages. Punitive stands for punishment. And so if someone is suing you for an intentional tort, they're trying to make the threat that, um, that you're going to have a potential dollar judgment against you that will be quite significant. More importantly, most plain vanilla professional liability policies uh, will not cover an intentional tort. They will not cover battery. They will not cover punitive damages. Um, so this is a challenge, particularly if you're on the receiving end of a battery claim, and that's the only claim you have. Now, if you're sued for battery and negligence, your carrier is likely to defend you on both claims. But if it turns out at the end of the day that you're found uh, not liable on the negligence claim, but you are liable on the uh, intentional tort or battery claim, uh, you may have a headache. Your carrier may be able to argue they don't want to uh, pay for the uh, the judgment. So, Mike, what are your thoughts uh, on this? And why don't you spend just a couple of minutes also talking more broadly about the consent process because that's what triggered this particular case. I agree with you. It is what it is what triggered it, and you've done a nice job discussing battery. So, I'm going to move on. Um, <clears throat> but this is where you you get stuck with a. Um, a Greek attorney, you get a little bit of mythology. And in Greek, mytho in Greek mythology, there's this monster um, called Procrustes. And Procrustes made everyone fit the same bed. So you wouldn't really know he's a monster. You stop off and, you, and you, you sleep. And if you are too short, then in the middle of the night, Procrustes stretches you to the length of the bed. And if you are too long, as this gentleman appeared to be, um, he would lop off your legs. So it, it's kind of the idea of um, every problem is made to fit a solution. And why, <clears throat> well, an interesting story, at least for, for, um, for my fellow Greeks, where this fits to me is in the consent process, because so many times we see people treat every patient the same with a consent and just it's just the document right and we try to make everyone fit the document instead of the document fitting the situation and what i mean by that is when you're trying to get informed consent you want the patient to understand the risks of the procedure and the alternatives uh, that they have. And this is more of a process. There is not magic language that if someone signs, regardless of how you get their signature, that you have a get out of free jail card, right? <clears throat> the patient has to understand what he or she is signing. And to me, that means you have to follow a process. It can't just wave the document in front of them as you roll them into the OR on the gurney. This needs to be done in advance. I suggest that people have 
documents days before and are able to review them, have a meaningful conversation with their, their caregiver and their provider and understand exactly what they're headed towards and what could arise. Now, early on, I see well, my, my career, I, I remember asking, a, and I had only been practicing law maybe a year, and I asked the surgeon, I said, did you, did you mention this? Did you mention that? It was on the, in consent. And the exasperated surgeon looked at me and said, look, if I mentioned everything that could go wrong to a patient before a surgery, no one would have surgery. And you know, so I get it, right? There, there, are, there are definite limits, but we want to have good documents and we want to have a procedure in place that patients are not rushed through the consent process. You're not just obtaining a signature on a line. Mm -hmm. You are conveying information and for it to be successful, that's what you need to think about. Some practices use videos, some provide links for more information. And I know that this will trigger questions which end up taking your time or your staff's time. And I'm sorry about that, but that is what is required for informed consent. It's the informed part is superior to the consent part because you can't consent unless you understand what you're consenting to. I feel like I'm on a soapbox and I'm gonna let a little oxygen into the room and step down. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think to expand on your, on your soapbox thread, it is important to, um, to describe what, what is it that the reasonable patient would want to know. And they want to know two things, I think. What are the common things that are likely to happen even if they're not fatal? And then the flip side is what are the uncommon things that would have horrific consequences? So one example might be, what about um, injection of Restylane into the face? I mean, the, the, typically there's no complication whatsoever. Um, on the one hand, there may be tiny amount of bleeding or bruising, maybe an infection. Um, on the other hand, an extremely uncommon but um, FDA black box warning, um, at least to some, for some fillers, you could end up having an embolus into a vessel causing slough of a great deal of, um, of skin uh, on the face and tissue. And in an even worse situation, you can end up having blindness. Now, I don't know how frequently uh, physicians talk to patients about those particular types of complications because they are uncommon. And to your point, if you brought up blindness every time you uh, we're getting a consent form for a facial filler. Um, how many people would uh, elect to uh, continue? But I think this can always be couched by saying, look, it's extremely uncommon. And even in cases of general anesthesia, I think it's always important to say, and in the worst case scenario, um, you could end up dying from the procedure. Now, it's extremely uncommon. But I think if you don't have these types of discussions and you end up having a problem, if your patient is the one in 100,000 that has it, I think it's almost uh, indefensible. What do you think? I agree. You've got, you've got to lay that, that information uh, out. And it, it certainly can be laid out there with, with odds or, or percentages. So somebody has, can evaluate just what kind of risk it is. And at the end of the day, we all take risks every time we get up and, and get in an automobile, right? I mean, just because there's a potential um, risk doesn't mean that we won't move forward. And I think patients understand that. And if put in those terms, they'll, they'll be fine with it.
They do. And that's why uh, when I landed on an airplane not too long ago, the pilot got on board and said, thank you so much for flying with us. You've now completed the safest part of your journey today. And thank you. <laughs> The thinking being is that your drive home is going to um, incur much more risk than the uh, than being a passenger in the airplane. And I do think your point is a good one, meaning that patients do understand if something is uncommon, they're unlikely to incur that risk. But I do think it still is good practice to expose them to it. Now, I think one of the challenges with respect to to doing um, a good informed consent is that it, it's just time consuming. And I am a fan of what some practices have done for their most common procedures to create some type of video where the doctor is speaking, maybe he recorded 10 or 15, maybe 20 minutes of material. That way he doesn't have to repeat that same stump speech every time. And he's able to at least have the patient go through um, um, a viewing of that uh, recording. And so when the patient has some questions, it tends to be, a, a good discussion related to the patient's individual needs. What do you think of that? I really like that, and especially because those, um, if they're providing that information electronically, uh, that link's going to go to them at, at home, and they're going to have time to look at it. Now, whether or not the patient does or whether or not the patient shares it with a family member, that's on the patient. But I think the practice gets great, uh, great bonus points, in my mind, for allowing the patient to review this at, at his or her leisure in a comfortable setting and have plenty of time to go over it and share it. Um, and you're, you move away from that criticism of you just shove the paper right in front of somebody as you're wheeling into the OR. Yeah, I want to close with one final point. Um, again, dispelling a myth. Um, I think you've done a nice job of, of stating that the signature on a cookie cutter informed consent isn't isn't the end of the story right here. Really, the, the true story is the process of informed consent and documenting that, typically culminating with a signature on a standard informed consent. But we have seen cases successfully defended. Let me, let me repeat, they were successfully defended when there was no signature on an informed consent, meaning that it was filled out, was never signed. But in the medical record, the doctor had stated um, we had a lengthy discussion about this particular procedure. We went over the risks, benefits, and options, some of those risks, including A, B, and C. The patient asked about uh, Y and Z, and um, he understood that, um, uh, that this was a good alternative to compare, compared to the other options. That narrative, that uh, two-paragraph narrative, was his get-out-of-jail-free uh, card. The fact that there was not a signature on the plain vanilla informed consent um, was a problem, but it was a problem that was explained uh, away and the doctor successfully defended. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. 
Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.